Happy Halloween, everybody. Happy Halloween, Javid. (laughs) Hello and welcome to another in our series on the films about Stephen King. Today we are going to talk about probably the most controversial of all Stephen King movies, Stanley Kubrick's version of The Shining. Now, The Shining came out in cinemas during the summer of 1980 and was on the crest of a wave of a horror movie cycle. It was a huge hit. Although Stephen King didn't like the way his best-selling novel had been changed for the screen by Kubrick and fellow writer Diane Johnson. In short, the film's about Jack Torrance, as played by Jack Nicholson, who agrees to be caretaker with his family of the remote Overlook Hotel during the winter months. Shortly after moving in, strange events start occurring, building to an unleashed horror. More on that as we go through, and I can guarantee there will be spoilers. I don't suppose they uh, told you anything in Denver about the tragedy we had up here during the winter of 1970? Well, a man named Charles Grady is the winter caretaker. And he came up here with his wife and two little girls, I think about eight and ten. From what I've been told, I mean, he seemed like a completely normal individual. But at some point during the winter, he must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran amok and... uh, Killed his family with an axe. You can rest assured, Mr. Ullman, that's not going to happen with me. To discuss this and other aspects of The Shining, we have a panel. Regulars, Graham and Neil. And joining us from Cindermick Nerds Podcast are Rich and Lewis. Hi, lads. How are you doing? Good, good. Hi, uh, good, thanks. You ready for Halloween? Well, I mean, 2020's been Halloween anyway. This is true, actually. Constantly throughout the year. Yes, yeah. But yeah, I, I can't wait. It's all about candy and horror films. I can get away with the sweets, but in my house, if I put a horror film on, my wife leaves the room. So I'll be putting them on nonstop that day. First question to you all. Did you re-watch The Shining for this show? And if so, what are your initial thoughts on the film, which is now, of course, 40 years old? Lewis, I'll start with you. I haven't watched it ready for this, but that's because last year I watched it twice. So I watched it for the first time five years ago on its 35th anniversary in the cinema. And for a horror film experience, it was up there. And that's only because I was sat in the front row. (laughs) (laughs) So with all Kubrick's kind of camera angles, it felt like IMAX and I've never been to IMAX. I was so kind of like, whoa, hang on, this is weird if that makes sense, last year when I wanted to watch Doctor Sleep. And I was like, right, I need to watch The Shining again. So I put that on. At home, different experience. And I'll be honest with you, I may be in the minority here. As The Shining, just as a film, I'm not a great big fan of it. You're not in the minority, I can assure you. Uh, No. Well, that's good. (laughs) Just because I mentioned Doctor Sleep, I just prefer Doctor Sleep, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. Yeah, and I agree with that as well. Oh, that's good. That's going to be easy. Neil? Yeah. <laughs> I watched it first time when it first came out in, what was it, 1980. And, what, in the uh, cinema? Yeah, yeah. Jesus, how so, many nights did you have to have the light on after that? <laughs> uh, you're funny. <laughs> and um, some friends were going and I thought, and I thought, no, I really don't want to see this. And I watched it. It really spooked me, really seriously spooked me. And I watched it a couple of nights ago for this. And I thought, Really? Yeah. Is that is that it? Maybe it was the cinema, maybe it's the fact I was just going to say, is your cinema experience, was it better then? 
Oh, far better. I mean, yeah. it's the, the thing is that you've also got all these prop references. You've got mm-hmm. um, obviously Ready Player One, but um, I mean, it's even in Toy Story. You've got that carpet thing in Sid, Sid's house, haven't you? You sort of see stuff here, there, and everywhere, and you're sort of expecting it. So there's no shock. It was an odd experience, I must admit. The first two thirds very good, but the last third, I, really. <laughs> and, and you managed to sleep without a light on after watching yeah, it. Yeah, 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 I was fine. Oh, it wasn't that scary at all, then, was it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Rich? I first saw this one when I was a teenager, and I didn't really have a clue what was going on, if I'm honest. Um, yeah, I flipped through it again recently just to reacquaint myself. I don't hate it as a movie. I, I'm feeling like I'm going to be in a minority that actually doesn't mind it. I find it quite chilling and quite isolating. It's not obviously a big cast, really. The music in it, as with a lot of horror films, that's what really gets me, I think, and certain expressions some of the characters are pulling. And also the bit with the old granny in the bath, that kind of freaks me out a little bit, I'm not going to lie. But again, I feel like I'm going to be in a minority here. Well, I don't know. Let's see what Graham has to say. I find it very spooky when I saw it in the cinema originally back in 1980. I'd read the book. So I knew what was coming. I wasn't that impressed with all the stuff he'd done to change it. I remember being quite annoyed at some of the uh, plot points had been taken out or just ignored when he did it. And then when I watched it the last week uh, for this show, I thought, oh, my goodness, this is strange. This is a film of two facets, really. You've got one, which is the technical side, which Kubrick is brilliant at. And I love the steady cam following the little kid on his trike as he goes down the corridors. Mm -hmm. I love the way the blood pours out of the elevators. All of that is fantastic. But looking back at it now, the two principal leads are just very, very poor. And I just found their whole performances were just very all over the place, really. Okay. Well, we're going to pick up on that in a bit more detail in a bit as we go in into that and some of the reasons and some of the choices that were made. Okay. Yeah, I think a lot of us are on the same page on this. When I first saw it in the cinema when it came out in 1980, I was quite impressed by it. I hadn't read the book. I thought production design on it, the look at the film and certainly the last third all worked for me in the intervening years. I've seen it a couple more times and I have read the book since and going back to it last week, I was, yeah, really disappointed. There's, there's a couple of moments with a little bit of tension, but generally it it doesn't work. And I think the reason it doesn't work because of what's left out from the book The whole purpose of the book is the hotel wants Danny because of that power of The Shining. I mean, it is, after all, it's called The Shining. And the main motivation is to get to the child. But you watch the film. It isn't. The main motivation of the film is to get to Jack Torrance, the Jack Nicholson character. Uh, And that's what the Overlook wants for whatever reason. That is very strange. And by the way, it's it's an anomaly that's corrected in Dr. Sleep. Very well, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Rich, have you read the book? I haven't, actually. Um, I'd like to give it a go now, especially as recently I have found out certain bits that were changed. It happens a lot with films, and it is disappointing. And I can understand if you had read the book before and then watched the film, why you would be quite anti-Shining. But I've only got the film as my um, 
source at the moment really so i would yeah i really like to give the book a go yeah it's 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 definitely worth it it's the slow burn i mean in the film nicholson is barking mad from the off whereas (laughs) yeah whereas in the book (laughs) well exactly exactly which is of eastwick he's perfect to play the devil because of this (laughs) yeah and that's why you've got that gradual decline and the infusion of the hotel into him in the novel and it's just there pretty much from the word go. But we'll cover parts of that in a bit. Lewis, have you read the book? I'm actually halfway through it. Lucky devil. Uh, Lucky <laughs> it devil. is a really good book and I do enjoy it, but I've got to be in the right mindset to kind of just focus and read it. I know kind of the ending and I know like the different aspects from this not gone onto screen really. Um, and I agree with everything. The film is very much a different beast from the book. The book the book is just better, in my opinion, because it's got slow builds up and it's got that kind of tension already. And yeah. there's more focus on the actual characters and like you say, Danny, rather than Jack. When you get an entity like that, you you would think it would go for the yeah. power base, which is makes perfect sense in the book. And and less so in in the film mm-hmm. is is it true that kubrick rang stephen king up and said i can't do them as ghosts because that would prove that we survive death and king was going well what are you talking about that's the book yeah. <laughs> they are ghosts yeah. they are it is hell it is <laughs> the it's the the shine from the burial ground as soon as i heard that i started thinking well what the hell was kubrick playing at it's just that Jack Nicholson getting mad, but he's already mad in the car. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, doing a long journey like that with a kid asking all those questions, you'd, yeah. you'd be mad, wouldn't you, halfway through that journey? Oh, God. But, but dear, dear. Uh, the um, King wrote a screenplay for this, and Kubrick threw it out and yeah. brought in Diane Johnson, who wrote about Gothic history. That's what he was he was trying to go for. Have you read the book, Neil? No, I haven't. I just listened to a, a Stephen King interview where he, he basically said that Jack is a sympathetic character in the book. Yeah. Um, Do you know he, he's not allowed to criticise the film anymore? Isn't he's, he? He wanted <laughs> to redo The Shining for TV, which he's done, and we'll talk about that in the future show. But to get the rights back from Kubrick to be able to do it, Kubrick said, the only thing you can complain about is Nicholson's performance. Other than that, if I sign over these rights to you, you're not allowed to give any more criticism of the film. That's mm. right. Yeah. yeah. Nothing yeah. like being up your own ass, Stanley, was it? Graham, <laughs> um, <laughs> well, we the can book? do it for him. Yeah. Well, yeah, I try to. Graham, you read the book? I can now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we're here. Oh, yeah. Oh, not okay. off. No, I just had a small problem. Okay, um, yeah, I read the book. Well, at that time, 1977, the book came out. I was living in Southend and and working in London, and I had an an hour and 20 commute in the morning and an hour and 20 commute on the way home on the train. So everybody was really well-read. I can remember vividly getting a copy of The Shining, getting on the train, opening it up, and there being about... 12 other people in the carriage who were reading The Shining as well. It was was a sort of cultural event. And then really, really quickly, it seemed to me, just three years later, the film came out. 
So yes, I read the book. Yeah, I, I remember really enjoying the book and really liking the that Stephen King does that Stephen King thing where he he takes a sort of a framework of a person and then every chapter you get a little bit more information about them, a little bit more until they become really three-dimensional and the whole world building he does as well and i didn't get any of that with jack nicholson he fell under the table went mad and then just put his eyes up to the top of his head and just went around being a dick (laughs) i don't hold back (laughs) it really annoyed me i saw the film and i thought the film was good and then i rewatched it and i thought what happened to this yeah yeah I'm going to move on to something a little bit more positive then now. Uh, it, the, the thing with Kubrick, and, and I think Kubrick was extremely lucky with this film. You know, he got the book. This is King's third book. Everybody thought it was going to be a big bestseller. But it, it did, in the end, out, outsell anybody's expectations. But Kubrick bought it and then went ahead and made the film. And, of course, while all this was going on, you had Halloween, Friday the 13th, the early films of Cronenberg were coming out. So horror was on a real wave at this point in time. So he comes out right in the middle of it, and the film is a, a huge success. Uh, and one of the things that makes it stand out, I think, is the production values. You know, that Overlook Hotel, you've got a sense of the size and scale of the hotel. He couldn't do the maze animals, which is a, a key thing in the book. So he couldn't do that, but he puts the maze in. And again, I think, you know, Production-wise, that's incredible. The steady cam shots are fantastic. That opening with this discordant music, mm. the the hills, the car going up it towards this hotel, I think it is incredible and really sort of drags you in. On terms of production, it's brilliant. What are your thoughts on production? Lewis, I'll start back with you. Well, like I said, when I first watched it, again, it was in the cinema. The production is probably better than the film. You've got some weird elements. I can't remember who's mentioned it, um, about the blood coming out of the elevator and yeah. you know the camera shots, the steady shots. That stuff's done really well. You can see why Kubrick is Kubrick. Just It just kind of looks very expensively made, like Warner Brothers just chucked Kubrick all the money so that he can film it. Yeah. And of course they had to film it in the UK because Kubrick famously mm. never left the UK once he came here. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, mm. and what's interesting is how we got that. So if you ever see the trailer, the trailer is that blood coming out of the lift. Yeah. You weren't supposed to put blood into trailers and Kubrick convinced the censors it was actually rusty water. <laughs> so yeah, had, sure, had, Stanley. He, yeah. he had a sense of humor to get that through. Graham, what do you think of the production values? Oh, well, well, I think the production stuff is off the charts. The whole Overlook Hotel, even down to the carpet and and the way the tracking shots work, yeah. it's almost like he put a spirit level and measured everything out. You know, it's just so well done and everything's symmetrical and everything lines up and you get these great shots, especially in the the corridors of the hotel where you've got just, it's just whizzing past you symmetrically and then you get the two little girls appear and it's like, oh, what the hell? So it jars you out of that sort of tunnel vision, literally tunnel vision. 
Um, and I think it's really well done. I thought the stuff by using industrial salt to make it look like snow when they went outside, I thought all of that stuff was incredibly ingenious way to get that effect. The maze was done so well. You know, you got a, a sense of being completely lost when you were in the maze when you were watching it. Stanley Kubrick, an absolute professional when it comes to design and shooting it, but when it comes to working with people, ah, not so great. <laughs> Fair comment. Rich? Yeah, I think I agree with uh, the other guys about uh, the set. It was one of the biggest like created at the time for a film. It is stunning. And, I think and it burned down during production as well. Yeah, I heard that as well. Crazy. I think a lot of that is a big part of why I like it. I think where we did film studies, I think you did it as well, didn't you, Lewis? I did, yeah, yeah. You really study like stuff like the scene and you look past maybe like the the actual acting and I think yeah, production wise, it was spot on. And yeah, I do I love the camera angles in it. I think that's a big part of why I like it as a film. I know you guys have dug it out for the negatives and I'm starting to I'm starting to see where you're coming from with that. But um yeah, production wise, second to none really. And Neil, you picked up on these production values the way he uses sound as well. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the bit that really spooked me in it was the kid riding around in his tricycle and going across the carpet, the rumble on the carpet. And the noise was was um, turned right up when he went over the wooden floors. Mm. And it was... fact that the whole hotel was a maze and you never really knew where you were it was like the maze outside and jack nicholas was in the middle of it um yeah i i, I thought it was excellent absolutely jack fantastic. nicholas is a, is a golfer neil yeah sorry jack nicholas is one of my favorite golfers <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't have been that good in the shining really with a bloody yeah, golf yeah. club jack running Ni- around there with better with jack oh. nicholson in the middle probably have some wood in room 237 oh that's coming out (laughs) that's terrible thank you for that hey i'm there to help and the other thing that kubrick does with this is the lighting is turned right out yeah there's virtually no scenes of darkness even when they're running around the maze at the end it's well lit Mm -hmm. so he goes against what you'd expect in a horror film the horror film tropes he plays on that and does cutaway shots like with a girl suddenly appearing. It's nothing coming at you from darkness. Mm. So that I thought was good. But yeah. I would say for Kubrick's direction, it's it's very cold and detached, as in all his films. And we did a show when we were speaking to Phil Stubbs about Stanley Kubrick. I say again that he's an unemotional director, and comedy and horror need emotion. And that's mm. part of the problem with this film. It didn't work for me on that level because they've done these scenes so many times, 40, 50 times that it taken the human contact out of it. And for me, Kubrick was definitely the wrong director for this. Neil, what do you think? Yeah, no, I agree entirely. Just um, Stephen King's comments that the whole thing was set up to be Jack Nicholson as a sympathetic character and forces acting on him. 
Kubrick went, no, no, do the other way. Yeah, Chet Nicholson is forcing on everybody else. It, everything was cold, wasn't it? I mean, even right down to the fact that the in the book, doesn't the hotel burn? Yeah. The hotel's destroyed at the end. Well, yeah. At, yeah. at the end in the film, he freezes. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's he's even in the end of the film shows, yeah, actually, I'm really cold. It's quite goofy, that bit, when they show him frozen at the end. It, it doesn't... Yeah. That's probably well, the worst yeah. bit for me, actually. Well, more so for me, because as he's running around in that maze, there's no steam in Nicholson's breath. It had been pointed out to me years ago, and I'd never seen it, but this time I did, and it really, really irritated me. That's how... That's weird. When she goes to look at, at the snowmobile and the distributor cap's been taken off and cut, you can see her breath in that scene, but you can't see it anywhere else. No. So all the outside scenes, they, they didn't have it chilled down, but they did in that one scene. So it, even, it makes it even odder. Hmm. Yeah, because it was filmed during the summer. It was baking hot on that set. And, of course, the, the beauty of it, the snow being industrial salt, and polystyrene in places as well. You could get away with that. It doesn't matter what the temperature is. But, yeah, you, you've got to watch for things like that, mm-hmm. I think. Certainly for someone from Kubrick's point of view. Lewis, your view on Kubrick as uh, director? He's not great, is he? Um, I've not really seen many Kubrick films, I'll be honest. I've only seen The Clockwork Orange in this, so I'm going to, yeah, I haven't really got anything much to say on him but my kind of thing is you look more at like what Matt, Mike Flanagan done with Dr. Sleep and it felt quite warm in places and just already a better film but because obviously Halloween's been coming up as well I've been watching a lot of horror films recently and my, one of my personal favorite horror films is The Conjuring 2 and that's just because you've got that humor as well as terrifying horror in there and that is what this film's missing. And you can just tell, again, I know we're going to discuss about a certain like documentary clip, but it just kind of puts you already off on this film as soon as you start hearing all these kind of shady stories and the original novelist didn't like the film. So it's just cold and just not. Yeah, I agree. I mean, as you studied Kubrick, what do you think? You said about like the uh, cold and detached style. And then hearing, like like you said, all the story, all the backstory about it, it, it sounds like it was a, more of a horror film actually working on it than the film itself, really. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely. It is quite isolating. And again, I guess that would have felt like that in real life as well, uh, being a cast member. So making a film, it should be fun, really. And this sounds like it was pretty, um, pretty bad. Uh, yeah, extremely. Well, let's let's go on to performances and let's talk about jack nicholson over the top or just right neil over the top yeah he's supposed to be sort of slightly unhinged but he just he's even unhinged in the car so how far does he actually have to go i thought he was just over the top but you put jack nicholson in that role and you kind of get that don't you kubrick obviously wanted that he He, just seemed nuts as soon as he walked in even in the interview you, yeah. you say that you say that about him being over the top, but bear in mind this is only a couple of years after Chinatown. He'd done one yeah, through the Cuckoo's Nest. He wasn't over the top in Cuckoo's Nest. He was just mm, the right sort of balance, I thought. Mm. Um, and this was, to me, the first place where he became the Jack Nicholson that we know. 
I just thought it was a bit sort of um, there wasn't a lot of subtlety in there. Oh, absolutely right. There's no subtlety whatsoever in this. Mm. Um, okay, Rich. Yeah, I mean, you could argue it's over the top. I think if he's been told to act like a mad axeman by the director or something, then he's going to just... Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suppose so, yeah. yeah he's going to just true. go for it. Again, if I read the book and had that as the context, then I might have thought this is more over the top. But again, I look at Jack Nicholson as being a bit out there, really. So yeah, I could see where someone would argue it's over the top. Yeah, that's fair enough. Interesting and bizarre fact about this is... For a two-week period, when Nicholson was at his most intense and crazy, he ate nothing but cheese sandwiches, and Nicholson hates cheese sandwiches. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, wow. yeah, that put him in a bad mood. Graham? I love Jack Nicholson, and I just can't understand why he went so wrong in this. He was fantastic, razor sharp, nailed it in Chinatown. He was brilliant in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Now, I don't know whether that's down to Milos Forman, the, um, the, the the director for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, was really tight and, and worked very closely with him to get the best performances. And I think Kubrick just says, oh, can you do a mad bloke and I'll just get the cameras running. Yeah, I'd, I'd redo it 40 times. Yeah, There are some moments when that crazy over-the-top stuff works. Obviously, the iconic, here's Johnny, where he's smashing down the door. That that works fine. Here's Johnny. <laughs> and there's a little clip, and we've spoken about this before, Jeff, where he has a nightmare and he falls down under the table and he's on the floor with Shelley Duval. And there's an intense moment there where he talks about murdering his family and how horrible it is. And I thought, oh, that's really good. That's the sort of crazy guy I want to see. But then he just rolls his eyes up and goes, oh, I'm becoming a monster again. And the bit in the gold room and that sort of thing where he's in at the bar, you think, well, what's he doing? That's not... Signing uh, his a, soul, a, soul away. Yeah, that's a weird performance there. So uh, if you say he's over the top, I thought he was over the top, across no man's land, down into the other side of the trenches and over. I mean, I thought it was just terrible. Yeah, I mean, I agree that it's over the top. But from an entertaining perspective, I don't know whether or not it's just because of the film is that cold. But just towards the end, I just remember just being entertained by like, him portraying a cartoon character really and obviously we've got i'm sure everyone's seen the simpsons halloween special that spoofs this (laughs) yes and it's just i've got that scene in my head when he's coming up the (laughs) stairs and he's just going light of my life (laughs) there's just it's just more entertaining so i kind of don't mind it (laughs) you are concerned about him And are you concerned about me? Of course I am. Of course you are. Have you ever thought about my responsibilities? Oh, Jake, what are you talking about? Have you ever had a single moment's thought about my responsibilities? Have you ever thought for a single solitary moment about my responsibilities to my employers? Has it ever occurred to you that I have agreed to look after the Overlook Hotel until May the 1st? Does it matter to you at all 
that the owners have placed their complete confidence and trust in me and that I have signed a letter of agreement, a contract in which I have accepted that responsibility. And that's interesting because that is, as I said, sort of horror and comedy have a very, very close relationships. Definitely. And, and, and yeah, it could almost spill over. And that probably made it so easy to be able to do in The Simpsons as well. Yeah. Oh, it's great, though. Give me the bat, Marge. Give me the bat. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think this is one of the most repulsive characters ever caught on film. I think Nicholson, yes, we're, we're looking at the highlights, if you like, of of a performance. Uh, all the bits where he's going mad we don't see because that's already taken place off, off camera. He dismisses the incident, the absolute key incident in the book, where he breaks his son's arm. What really played on my mind this time watching it is his fawning nature around people outside the family, whether it's Ullman and the way he ingratiates himself with him, but more particular when he's with Lloyd. And Neil's already said he sells his soul essentially to Lloyd or to the hotel. But this really, I'm your best pal, Lloyd, and you're my best pal. But the moment he's back with his family, it's like that incident where Wendy walks in when he's writing. He said, you know, whether you hear me type in, whether you don't hear me type in, never come in the room. And it's just that bully mentality that he had. But you see it, and, and you see it in real life as well, these characters who are all, all great to see you, but behind the scenes, they're completely nasty bit of work. So, And I thought that was captured but it just irritated the hell out of me, and I really genuinely dislike this character. Which brings us on to the character he's bullying, Shelley Duvall. And, of course, we'll give reference to the documentary where Kubrick bullied her and had every member of the of the cast and crew bully her and told her not mm. to give her any time so he could get that performance out of her. And I think there's a little bit of victim, victim mentality, but underneath of it, you can see a woman who can get things to work. She runs the hotel. Mm. She's getting him breakfast, you know, within that first month when he can't get out of bed. She's the one checking the boilers. And yet she's the one that's the victim of this guy's bullying. And I think she's good. I think she's badly miscast because that's not the character in the book. But I think Duval gives it a great shot. Well, I agree. I think she gives it a great shot. Uh, weirdly, obviously, I've watched the film before the book. When I read the book, I can picture Shelley as the character. So I think that's kind of a win in her performance because I can't picture mm. Jack with Jack and Danny with Danny. But that's because for some reason, Danny in the film looks younger than. Is he 10 in the book? I can't remember. I think he's younger than that in the book. Mm. I think is he's he younger about than five that? or oh, six. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I think she, I think she gives it her all, but unfortunately, she's given it her all because she's had no choice but to, and it shouldn't be like that. Yeah, I remember many years ago, and this isn't mine, so Graham can't cut this bit out. Um, <laughs> the American critic Clancy Siegel, when he reviewed it on Radio Four back in 1980, said he said the problem with Shelley Duvall is is not her; it's the lines of dialogue she has to say. So she says at one point, "Get a lot written today, hun," and he yeah. said, "No, any." Any woman or any wife that comes up to you and says that deserves all the axe murdering she's going to get. Oh, oh no, you are <laughs> shitting me. <laughs> well, I thought, oh. and all these years later, that line's come back. Graham? When I first saw the film, I was very disappointed by her performance. I thought 
you're a lot better than this. I was expecting somebody more like Sigourney Weaver, you know, because the year before we'd had Alien and you had this tough, sassy, no-nonsense sort of person who could get stuff done. And then you see Shelley Duvall, and I don't think she represented the woman in the book that, that I thought. I saw her more as Sigourney Weaver than Shelley Duvall. So I had real problems, and her voice drove me mad. And she, was, she just sounded like a little girl most of the time, and that really irritated me. So I remember at the time being very, very upset by her performance. Then I watched the the documentary, and my heart went out to her because the, the way they treated her was absolutely disgusting. So when I watched it the second time, I'm with you guys. I think she gave it her best. But it was, again, the dialogue and what she was being asked to do. So I'm very conflicted about her character. The character I had in my head from the book was very, very different. Neil? No, I agree with everybody. I I thought she actually, yeah, she was pretty good. Say She once said she had to basically cry for 12 hours a day in order to get the performances out and everything and, and what Kubrick was demanding. So, yeah, I, I thought it was good. Sometimes she annoyed me, but she was alone with a, with a madman and a, a kid who could see see dead people. Sorry, not that. No, it's not that film, is it? <laughs> the kid, uh, it's close. I the can't kid. believe you'd have seen that film. Either. I haven't. No, the I kid who so. can, uh, you know, start seeing things. So yeah, I, I thought she and she, in fact, she was doing all the work as well. Was her? I, I thought all that was nicely done, doing the boilers downstairs and such like. But yeah, no, I thought she was all right. Okay, Rich. Again, found out since watching it what she went through on set. I mean, when you look at her, you can see she's genuinely knackered. Like, if you see her face, she looks like someone that's distressed. And I thought, wow, that's good acting. But I think a lot of it was actually the real stress coming out of her. Yeah, shocking, really. Staying with you, Rich, any other performances stand out for you? I actually quite like part of played by Scatman Crovers. Mm, me too. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, I quite like the relationship that he has with um, Danny. I think that's quite a nice little touch. I'm assuming that's like, I hope it's true to the book because it sounds like not a lot of it is so far. <laughs> do you know what happens to him in the book, Lewis? Or do, you, can mm, I... do I? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, 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 I okay. do. In the book, he doesn't die. So the in-joke mm. of the film is him getting to the hotel. In the book, he helps Danny and uh, Wendy escape from the Jack Nicholson character. Of course, the, everybody expects that in the film, if you read the book. And the moment he walks yeah. into the hotel, he's then acts straight away in the chest. Three takes that took, by the way. Uh, Scatman <laughs> Brothers wasn't happy. That was a nice joke. But that relationship between the two, the few scenes they have, that 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 is right. By the way, another Scatman Crothers story on this film, because, they, again, he was also doing for most of it 40, 50 takes. He went straight from this film to work on Bronco Billy with Clint Eastwood, and Eastwood is notorious. He won't do any more than two, three takes at the most. Mm-hmm. And I think the first scene Scatman Crothers did, they did it in two takes, and he broke down crying and thanked Clint personally. He said, it's just so great <laughs> to be with someone that doesn't need to do it a hundred times. <laughs> But don't you think this is the problem with everything Kubrick does? He doesn't trust actors. 
So he he didn't trust uh, Shelley Duvall to be able to do an absolutely under-the-thumb woman who's living on her nerves and, and living on the edge. He didn't trust her to portray that character. So he made her that character so that he could get the performance, which is... That's a mental illness right there, Stanley. You need to sort well, that out. <laughs> and, and this is the discussion that we had with Phil Stubbs all that time mm. ago, is mm. where Kubrick succeeds, and, and Lewis, I think you'll get a real kick out of these films. You see where his talent really does work mm. is his fascination with armies and military. So you watch a film like Parts of Glory or Full Metal Jacket or even, oh, to, to the yeah, most part, yeah. you know, Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. The, and you see his the intricate nature of the way these games of war games are played out, and he's loving it. I mean, even in Spartacus, the battle scenes in Spartacus are incredible. Yeah, because uh, he loves that sort of stuff, and that's what he really, really does well. So I think you get a great kick out of that, uh, Graham. While you're on though, any other performances stand out for you? Uh, I like Scatman Carruthers as well. I thought he was. Excellent as that sort of touchstone, but I mean, that did make me jump in the cinema because I was going, oh, I'm sure Jack's around. How's he going to get out of this? And Jack steps out and whack, he's dead. And you think, what What the hell happened there? (laughs) You know, one of the little funny little things was that I did like was that seemed to me like a real hotel because everybody was working to get tidied up in a way for the winter season Mm -hmm. and all the staff running around and moving and everything being very efficient I thought that was well done. But then again, that's what Stanley Kubrick is good at. He probably had all of that in a spreadsheet. You know, you move there, you move there. Somebody carries a coffee service that way. Somebody else getting those bags. I I liked the kid. I thought the kid was very, very good and very, Mm -hmm. very believable. In fact, I thought his horror performance was better than Jack's. And in fact, I think his finger performed better than uh, than Jack Nicholson, <laughs> which was an um, impro- which was an improvisation the child did when he in his audition. Did he? Yeah. Oh wow. Okay, so he brought something of himself to it. And, yeah, and to be fair, I mean, we've had a go at Stanley Kubrick for his treatment of Shelley Duvall, and quite rightly, but his treatment of the child was completely different. He made sure. Mm. He wasn't sort of put in any danger or any trauma or anything like that. In, the in fact, he had no idea what was going on, did he? For most of it, and yeah. that would have been another reason they couldn't get a six-year-old like the book or whatever. whatever he yeah, is. that is true. Um, because the ten-year-old, he didn't know what was going on. He was brought in because his um, he had a really he could stare really long time and concentrate on one single point. Okay, I didn't and know so that. his and that's basically his um, role in it, isn't it? To stand absolutely still and stare straight ahead, and then wow. they put all the other stuff around him, so he didn't see anything that was going on. Yeah, uh, yeah um, I, th- um, I thought he was very good. Yeah, kid, yeah, Scatman Crothers, pretty good. Yeah, I agree. Okay, yeah, Lewis, what are your thoughts? Oh, I agree, Scatman Crothers, definitely. Just his entire performance, and I think. I think I'm kind of biased because I like the character anyhow. Especially reading the book, I can see his character. I'm kind of hoping he stayed alive in the film, you know, because you can see Dr. Sleep had to try and do some trickery, I suppose. But I found out as well that if Dr. Sleep, Dr. Sleep didn't do that well, but apparently they were going to go into the origins of uh, his character into a like kind of trilogy film. Okay. Um, But because Dr. Sleep didn't do that well, they kind of said no. 
That's a shame because I'm with you. We did a a talk with Andy from the States recently talking about old and modern horror films. And and to me, in modern horror films, I I think Mike Flanagan is streets ahead of anyone else at the moment. I think he's an amazing director. Definitely, definitely. Interestingly, on Scatman Crothers' character, he also turns up in it. In the new it, Andy. Uh, no, no, in the in the book, he doesn't turn up oh, in the film. It? Yeah, oh, it, there's there's again, a whole... I'm halfway reading that as well. All <laughs> oh, right, oh, you'll you'll find him. He he turns up for a, a section of that. No, okay, mm. and that goes with the because hasn't Stephen King created a universe? Yes. Yeah, the Dark Tower. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. yes, because I'm on book two, I think. Yeah, and apparently, is it book three of the Dark Tower where it suddenly starts forming? Yeah, it, it, it is my favourite book of the Dark Tower, book four. But oh, okay. The, the Dark yeah. Tower is not a good film. <laughs> no, no. It would work slightly better if they swapped the two leads. Yes. Yeah, oh, definitely. Mm. It's, it's just a disaster. Although I will say I, I did quite like, you know, pointing out the little cameos from his work. Oh, that's fun. And, and it's great in the in the Dark Tower series. And it, it's just something brilliant. It, I'm sure a streaming in the end will pick it up and do it. I yeah. mean, Amazon did a pilot, didn't they, for, for yes. Wolves of Calais? Yeah, and, and then they, they um, wouldn't pick so it up, yeah. which is a real shame. It is, part. it is, because it, it does need to be a TV series rather than a film series. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They need to tell it from the right perspective, because the Dark Tower film was from was Jake's film, and the Dark Tower mm-hmm. books are not about Jake. They're about the gunslinger. Yeah. And, and it's just... It, I was so, so cross when I came out of that film because I loved The Dark Tower. I, you know, I've read it twice now right the way through and I thought, oh, here we go. This is going to be great. And then there was no trailers. There was no promotion. I thought, oh, they fucked it up. I'm <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they had. It was terrible. It's the. I think it's the only... The only film in my film diary that's got zero, no wow. stars, oh, not even really? a half, zero. You're so and, I, and I've watched some shit, yeah. <laughs> I thought I bought it. Didn't I buy you the coffee mug because it was selling them off for like 90 uh, pence in exactly. like Forbidden Planet or something like and that? And the coffee mug, <laughs> you know, like coffee mugs, after they've been in the dishwasher like a million times, it, the actual logo comes off. That coffee mug is far better made than the film. Yes. The, the logo is still on it. So they should have given the direction to the guy who did the coffee mug. And again, it's interesting what you say, I and mean, we'll pass back to the shiny, but the Dark Tower <laughs> film looks at the boy as the, the central aspect of it, and it should be the gunslinger. Whereas this film looks at Jack as the central character, whereas mm. in the book, it's Danny. Mm. Everything is underpinned mm. by Danny. And the reason, well, there's a couple of reasons why this film is still so popular today. One, it's Kubrick. But the other thing is all the meanings that everybody associates with it. And I, oh and I was gosh. I was struck by something when watching it this time is it's the perfect film for lockdown. You know, <laughs> you're locked down, you're in a place with your, with your family and you're into a bit of domestic abuse. Awesome. That's it. That's today's society. Well, okay, on, maybe it's just me then. So you've got the theories, and I, I think that theory of, of now with lockdown and that domestic violence is, is quite relevant. But obviously there's other theories, the fact that Kubrick faked the moon landings and there's references allegedly throughout it. This is why Danny wears an Apollo 11 jumper. 
the true meaning of room 237 and its Holocaust roots. I mean, it's just inherent the way that these conspiracy theories are built out. I mean, what are, you, what are your thoughts on this, Lewis? Well, if I'm honest, I don't know any of the theories out there. I know that they've done a documentary. Is the documentary called Room 237? Yeah. Yeah, yeah so it's, I think it's on my Netflix to watch list. So I this is all new to me, but I'm being fascinated by these theories. Good luck. It will annoy the hell out of you. <laughs> no, really. <laughs> Other than my theory, of course, about the... Stanley Kubrick saw this lockdown come in and made it just uh, for that. But other than <laughs> that one, yeah, he's made it. He, he knew what was 40 years. 40 years ago, lockdown. he saw it coming. Yeah. Neil? I think uh, there's a lot of rubbish talked about this film. It's a film. Um, it's a film. Uh, um, yeah. And okay. I can't, I mean, the stuff about the um, moon landing is absolutely rubbish, I think. I can't believe that. Just wearing a bloody Apollo 11. There, there, there are in other things all. in it, apparently, but yeah, again, yeah. I, 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 I think can't it, defend them because they're nonsense. I think people have got too much time on their hands. We should do something better with their lives. Okay. <laughs> you know, oh, dear. I yeah. sound so old. Uh, well, you are. You and are. That's true. Let's go to point. the opposite end of the scale to someone young. Rich. <laughs> oh, thanks. I'm not too familiar with the conspiracy theories on this one, so I had a little read. Find I would like to watch the documentary Room 237, but they Jeff sort of put me off now, saying I'm, that we'd get annoyed watching it. Is it not good, the documentary? I just find conspiracy theories just generally annoying anyway. You like uh, to create uh, your own, don't you, I create my, Well, I've created one. <laughs> Kubrick knew when he made it that this was going to be a film about today and lockdown <laughs> and domestic violence. Jolly good. But yeah, I think um, <laughs> on a Reddit page somewhere. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think a few of the conspiracy theories are like ridiculous that you see banded around. I love an Easter egg in a film, and yeah, sometimes it's intriguing, but yeah, sometimes it's nonsense, really. Yeah, I, I must admit, Neil threw one out earlier, which I hadn't heard before, uh, which was the one that the carpet is used in Toy Story. Brilliant. And that one went straight over my head. That's so the kind of pop culture stuff, though, isn't yeah. it? I mean, yeah, yeah stuff... and that's referencing it. And again, we've spoken about The Simpsons. So, I mean, there's you know, how... loads of little bits and pieces in the film, like the, the carpet changing, changing it pattern for certain things and the chair that's next to Jack's desk is moving when he when he's um, writing and when he's not writing and things like that but yeah you read far too much into it I just think he went a bit nuts on this one Mr Kubrick okay well let's go to our conspiracy theory expert Graham (laughs) yeah well it's it's very clearly established that when Uh, Stanley Kubrick was on the moon filming the moon landings um, looking back at the flat earth Um, that's when he invented 5G which causes coronavirus (laughs) of course it's a load of bloody nonsense these people need to be rounded up put in stocks and have fruit and vegetables thrown at them no forced to have vaccines really (sighs) they drive me screwy they really do. They don't know anything about anything, and they come out with all this nonsense. One of the most enigmatic things about The Shining is the ending. What does that ending mean to you? Well, for for, for me, I yeah, I find that the ending in the in the film was just oh, really. Is that where we get to? Didn't really leave me with any sort of fulfilling conclusion. You know, he just freezes to death. 
And then we get the photograph. And I thought, uh, right, has he been absorbed back into the hotel? Is he now part of the hotel? Because that was very much the the view from the book is that the hotel is actually the evil. And that comes out in a lot of King stuff in Salem's Lot. The principal character says, do evil houses attract evil men? Stephen King's had this sort of history with evil houses and evil things. And there's a there's an evil house in the, the Dark Tower as well. So that sort of recurring thing. But I just thought, yeah, Stanley, you're just trying to be, you know, weird and enig- enigmatic and have a, a bit of a different ending there. Yeah, but one of the things in, in King's writing I really like is you've got the main story and just off to the side where you can hardly see it, there's something else going on, something bigger. And in this, it's the fact that there is something lurking underneath the Overlook Hotel. So when it's destroyed, you get a glimpse of what it is, almost like one of the Lovecraftian old gods. There's a bigger evil there. Now, in this film, the impression is given that whatever evil came there came because they built it on an Indian burial ground and it was a sacrilegious building of the hotel, uh, which is slightly different and toned down quite a bit. Again, that does come into that mysterious photo at the end and what does that mean? Rich, what does it mean to you? I was pretty clueless on it, to be honest, up until recently. I've got to come clean. But yeah, I mean, it is interesting when you find out about it, like you mentioned previously about the links with uh, Poltergeist and Pet Cemetery as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, now I've seen Pet Cemetery because I'd only actually seen that probably about a week or so ago. Yeah, I quite like how they link things up like that without making it sometimes too obvious. There's so many different interpretations of how that can play out. Lewis, what, what are your thoughts on the ending? I mean, well, it's an ending, isn't it? It's just, it was just there. Like, I, I didn't really you, have you're anything. You're taking messages from Neil. <laughs> <laughs> but it just, it just... I didn't even think anything of it other than, oh, okay, it's ended. Judging by it, the book's ending's a lot better. The, the yeah. book's ending is very, very different. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to, you know, scrolling through the pages and reading that. But in the film, it was just, it just ended and I left the cinema. Neil! I'm with Lewis. I thought it was a bit, I you knew know, you would, because Lewis <laughs> gave such a Neil answer, it was untrue. Yeah. Well, that, was, just, that, that was the whole thing. I mean, why, why did Kubrick do this job if he wasn't going to do the book? This obviously has some sort of meanings and everything, and the Indian burial ground, the sort of shine of uh, other people, traces left behind. And Kubrick said, yes, but I don't believe in hell. So I'm going to flip it around and just say it's all about Jack Nicholson going mad, and the fact that his because every time he goes sees a mirror, he sort of gets some sort of reaction. It's like a, it's an imagining as a, a barman serving him drinks, etc. It's always because there is a mirror and he's basically looking at himself. Say, Lloyd, it seems I'm temporarily late. <laughs> How's my credit in this joint anyway? Your credit's fine, Mr. Torrance. That's swell. I like you, Lloyd. I always liked you. You were always the best of them. Best goddamn bartender from Timbuktu to Portland, Maine. Or Portland, Oregon, for that matter. Thank you for saying so. But So he completely flipped it around and kind of then you get this thing at the end which Presumably, is some connection to other Stephen King books. I assume. No, no, it's not. 
no. or, or I don't know. It didn't make, okay. didn't make any sense. Well, I just ignored the, it. He froze to death. I, okay, thank you. Um, <laughs> is that condescending enough? Uh, there are two. I think there are two interpretations to the ending. One is that picture was always there, the 1921 picture, and it was just the hotel calling him home, if you like. He was the reincarnation of that character that was there then. Grady says to him earlier on in the film, no, you're the caretaker. You've always been the caretaker. Although, interestingly, he was a guest in that July 4th picture. The Mm. other one is that when he died, because he was doing what the hotel wanted, like Grady, he's absorbed into the history. Time, it's almost like a Christopher Nolan thing. You know, time has no meaning. And he was then, at that point, always a part of the hotel so he could turn up in that photo he may well have turned up in other photos but that's the one that uh, kubrick decides to end the film on is that kubrick's version or is that yes that's kubrick's version that's kubrick's yeah. version it's nothing like that in the king but i can assure oh, right. you right so it's nothing to do with stephen king this is something no that no, that, uh, oh, okay. no look, look the overlock isn't standing in the end of stephen king's version of this story yes of course yeah i think it's better done in ready player one <laughs> we have James, James Halliday appears in the picture. Weirdly, I was just thinking that as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah the whole film makes much more sense if uh, if you watch it through Ready Player One. Yeah, I showed that Ready Player One clip to my wife, and she went, "That's far better. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny." She said, and I went, "Yeah, okay." Let's sum up the final thoughts on The Shining, Graham. A missed opportunity. Technically brilliant. Acting-wise, a shabby mess. Rich? Yeah, production-wise, I really like it. Now I've got a bit more background context on it, like with regards to the book. As a film, I'm changing my mind a little bit. It does frustrate me when they change a lot from the book. Um, I've had that with a lot of other films. Yeah, I definitely want to give the book a read. So um, I find it unsettling in places as well. So, I mean, if that's what it was meant to do, that worked for me. I'm starting to be sweet. I'm just going to go and put my copy in the bin, actually, of the film. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Don't do that. Uh, Neil? Um, yeah, I agree with Graham. This is, this is a missed opportunity. I think that's a good uh, good phrase. You agree with Graham? Oh. That's a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> Lewis? <laughs> a great cinema experience, but after that, I just I just feel nothing. It's not it's not really kind of a Stephen King horror film that we you know we've all loved. It's not even that scary. It's not. I think the scariest thing in this film is when the bear suddenly pops its head up. That freaked me out when I first saw it. <laughs> yeah. And when it's someone dressed as a bear as you being your scariest part of the film. And what bit. were they doing? <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> I think that was the bare necessities. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh. Just, just, yeah. It's not, it's not the greatest of films. But at the cinema, I will say I did get kind of engrossed into it. Yes, I think it is more of an interesting cinema film. As I said, I was quite disappointed with it this time going back. I haven't been to it for over a decade, and I was quite disappointed. What I will say in its defence is, it is forty years old. And it's still a film everybody knows. There are many yeah. films, you know, that won Oscars around that time that are that, that are now being forgotten. But uh, for some reason, The Shining, and it's a horror film, has remained in the consciousness. So something about it is is definitely right, even though we as a panel were disappointed with it. Mm. So yeah. 
over. Thank you all for a fascinating discussion about this classic movie. Thank you. <laughs> and we will return in the near future with a new panel to discuss Stephen King's first original cinema work, Creepshow. Guys, thank you for joining us. And Pleasure. I hope you can make Pleasure. it for more thank of you. our Stephen King discussions. Yep, please. All, all I'll you. say to everybody, stay well and read King. <laughs>